everybody welcome to another episode of the podcast on d-shot um my my uh, guest today on my on this episode is uh one of the best tuba players in the country um and tuba professor at lawrence university um and marty erickson who just came off of um playing with the kenosha pops on this past wednesday um marty thanks for joining me you bet thanks for having me um so let's kind of just start with kind of um like your music, like how did you get into music growing up, and how did you kind of gravitate towards um, eventually playing the tuba and the euphonium? Sure, uh, I grew up in a musical family. My mom was quite a musician. Uh, when she was seventeen, she won top in the nation on a cornet. I have her championship medal from Marion, Indiana. Then she switched to French horn. Was the principal French horn of the Louisville Symphony. Then she later went to Indiana University. She also played assistant principal viola in orchestra and flute, and she accompanied me on piano. So, and then we, uh, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. We moved to Michigan when I was young. My band director was Gilbert Stansel. He founded Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp, and his son just retired as president of the camp. So they collaborated with my family, and we grew up, so I grew up around music all the time. I started in fifth grade, on cornet, but one year later, it's like the typical uh, band director, child psychology. I bet you couldn't handle the tuba. Oh yes, I can. <laughs> so, uh, so I switched over to tuba, and I found I really liked it because kind of being the I bought into the idea of being the backbone of the whole band. I liked the sound of it, and I was the only one doing it. So uh, that's how I got into the tuba. Okay, um, so like I'm guessing you really liked marches growing up then, or. Uh, I, I like music growing up, and um, the marches came more of a part of the jobs I had to do. I, it was part of every band concert. Leonard Falcone was my teacher at Michigan State in a, uh, 40 years at Michigan State University, and he was a euphonium player, and l many of his students went in the military bands. And then I had another teacher, Ed Livingston. Uh, he was Grand Rapids Symphony, but he grew up in the march era, and he played in circus bands. So I was aware of it at an early age, but I would just say I was more interested in music okay. and got guided toward the band side more, studying Mr. Falcone, and then I won the job in the U.S. Navy band. Um, so you're kind of talking about your more interested in music. So what, like, what kind of, I guess, recordings did you have around you when you were growing up? Uh, everything. So a, a typical Saturday for us was listening. My dad was a big band fan. My mom was pretty much strictly classical, so we owned all of the musical heritage recordings like Maurice Andre and trumpet and classical recordings. And uh, I remember when I was 15 years old, I heard the Mozart Bassoon Concerto, and I said, boy, I wish I could play that. And my mother said, well, you can. It's just, it starts with a B-flat triad. You can play that on tuba. So we had a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Yes, I'm that old. And so I taped the uh, concerto, and i turn it on, play four bars, turn it off, and play from memory. And I learned the whole first movement of the Mozart bassoon concerto by doing that before I ever saw a piece of music. So 
Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, then, that's, that's cool, just being able to, like, listen to a, a piece of music and then be able to kind of play it off of the ear. Off of the ear. Yeah, that's really important still in my teaching. It's, it's, uh, it needs to be more important, uh, using the ear. So when, with my students, we do more playing. Uh, and then I got into jazz and things, but uh, the ear thing is huge. So not only can I usually play most of the pieces I hear, but I can usually play them in any key. So, uh, it's just... Thank <laughs> you. 
Um, we talked about the Navy Band. Um, how did that come out? And then what's kind of that 
like audition process what was that audition process like and yeah i learned about the band uh the premier what they're called premier service bands in washington dc there's service bands everywhere there used to be a lot of them in the navy there was uh 30 or 40 and now they're down to maybe six or eight uh but uh, i learned about those at michigan state university um and uh, earl louder was one of the more famous euphonium players he played with the susa band new susa band and the Navy band, and um, so I auditioned when there was an opening, and what helped me get in at the time, uh, I was only 20 when I auditioned, was I could also play string bass. I'd been playing string bass uh, with the jazz bands. And um, so that, uh, they needed a tuba player, and they also wanted to have a, uh, a bass player for combos. So I auditioned for Earl Lauder, a very famous name in the band world, and Ed Moon was the principal tuba player of the Navy band. And I went and we, on a break, he said, can you stay around? And I played for the whole brass section leaders and the leader. And they offered me the job in the band. So I got to the Navy band um, eight days after my 21st birthday um, and spent 26 years there. Okay. Um, kind of with, with the Navy band, obviously being one of the service bands, and obviously I know a little bit about the Marine band just through knowing Jason sure. Fadig a little bit. Um, uh, what are kind of the thing, like similarities and differences between the Navy band and the Marine band, or what kind of all, things does the Navy bands, band do for like, president stuff? You know, it, we talk about this all the time, and I get asked that question, and they say, well, which band is the better? I'm, I, well, I was in the Navy band, so that was best. But in truth, all the musicians are just incredibly good and better, getting better all the time. I just heard a Navy band concert when I was in D.C. a couple weeks ago, and it just sounds fabulous. And so does the Marine Band, Army Band. And um, one of the best things I did when I was in the service, I went to the other band concerts and went to their recital series and heard those musicians. And I think what most guys in the service bands will tell you is the bands that sound the best are the bands that are happiest with their leaders and and the day-to-day treatment of them as individuals and musicians. And um, so, I, uh, you know, we had... Leaders uh, we loved and leaders we didn't love as well. <laughs> and uh, the happy bands sound better, you know. But uh, they're all, uh, you. there's no splitting hairs between any of those musicians. They're all fabulous. Um, what kind of things does the Navy band do in terms of, um, obviously the Marine band has a little bit more relationship with doing things with the president. Um, sure, and it's called the president's own yep. for a reason. They, yep. So they're, they're it's... Uh, each band has an assigned um, task or has an assignment. The Marine is to support all activities related to the White House and the President. So, uh, but all of the bands play formal arrivals uh, for dignitaries. Uh, my first job uh, when I read the Navy band uh, at the White House was for Prime Minister Golda Meir was visiting when we, we played uh, the arrival at the White House uh, and then sometimes you retire the colors, we won't get into that, but all the bands do that. But the Marine Band has a chamber orchestra. They play in the White House frequently uh, for dances or formal receptions for the activities inside the White House. But all of the bands have played on the White House porch or for receptions. Or the, we take turns playing the Easter egg roll at the White House. Uh, but all the bands get that duty. But uh, the, so each band had a title. So, President's Zone from the Marine Band, Pershing Zone, because General Pershing formed the U.S. Army Band. Yep. And then uh, the Navy Band was known as the World's Finest. Uh, they kind of uh, dropped that for a while, uh, but it's tied on because John Philip Sousa 
was it the Navy Band and the Marine Band? He has tie-ins to both of those bands. Yep, with, uh, what was it? He was at Great Lakes, if I'm correct. Yep, and he was the a lieutenant. $1, $1 salary yeah, that he had in the Navy Band. I know, that's, that's a pretty good uh, bang for your buck right there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was a lieutenant in the Navy. Then he went over and took up, you know, had, uh, of course, the Suso. I was just showing you, has a collection of the heritage of John Philip Suso. Um, so that's how that all came about. Um, I guess any, like, good story, like any good stories from that kind of experience? Oh, or? yeah, I mean, and, and most service bands have them. I, I have a bunch of fun ones. My wife says I should do a, a book called The Sousaphone Player's Guide to the White House. But um, it's really interesting because in my career, my first job was I was playing string bass for a combo uh, for a reception for five-star Army General Omar Bradley. And my last job in the Navy band was to play for the retirement ceremony for another five-star Army General, General Colin Powell's retirement. And just before that, we had a Christmas party I was playing. I also formed the uh, Navy Band Tubi Fulham Quartet and U.S. Navy Band Brass Quintets while I was there. And those were new ventures at that time. And uh, my last Christmas gig with the Navy Band was at the Pentagon. And our quintet uh, got there early, as usual, and waited for an hour. And we were supposed to play for Colin Powell's Christmas party at the Pentagon with the Joint Chiefs. Of staff. So we're sitting in a room and I noticed there was other office parties going to the Pentagon, so I asked the person in charge of guarding us, I guess, why don't we play a few Christmas carols from those, some of those other parties. So we went and played music and we came back and we still had an hour wait. And the general came in, uh, Powell, and he said, uh, who's the leader? And I said, uh, that would be me, sir. And he said, do I understand you took my quintet around to play at other office parties? I said, uh, yes, sir, and I was kind of stammering. He said, no problem. I'm glad. I'm sorry you had to wait. That was a great idea. How would you like a tour of the war room? So my final uh, Christmas in the D.C. area was uh, we played brass quintet music, and um, Colin Powell took us to the war room and said, I sat in his chair and said, don't touch that phone. said, don't worry. <laughs> and we got a tour of the war room, and it's fascinating. Saw things. Uh, it's one of the joint chief staff. So there, and one of the funny things that happened uh, there's a bunch of them, but one is uh, memorable is we were playing on the back porch of the White House, and for the military musicians, this is not exactly fun, but because we play outside, we're playing marches and pop tunes, while cars drive up limousines to the back of the White House and let the dignitary, so we play music as they drive up, and, he, and then they walk inside and we stop playing. And they, if they're polite, they might wave to us, oh yeah, there's a band there, you know. So uh, this is when the, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was president. Barbara Bush was a, a great lady at that time. So I get this, uh, one of the White House staff came down and they had a little box. And I said, this is uh, the first lady to the tuba player. Uh, I said, and it was a note, it was on a box of, you know, um, Kenny Buckport, Maine, souvenir taffy, you know. It was just one of those souvenir things you get at various places. And uh, she had a note that said, I challenged the tuba player to play Stars and Stripes Forever while chewing on this saltwater taffy. So that's just a fun little side story, you know. So, so to clarify that, is it playing Stars and Stripes Forever just by itself? Or is it, yeah, was it just... with the band, yeah. Or was it playing <laughs> the piccolo obbligato <laughs> yeah. while like chewing we did. it? Yeah, I think it was just a challenge of... She saw the two biggest guys. She thought it might be funny to challenge us to try to chew saltwater taffy and play at the same time. So, but uh, she was great, and I had a lot of interactions. When uh, Vice President Dan Quell had a party, they used to live out at the um, Naval Observatory, the home where 
then became the chief of naval operations under Zumwalt. Uh, we actually became really good friends with the Zumwalt family and talked to them. And my mom and dad were visiting one time, and I won't get too many stories, but this is a good one. They came to see me, and Mrs. Zumwalt uh, had just come to thank the Navy band. She always baked a cake or something, came down to the sail loft where we rehearsed, and we played some table tennis together. And she, what's going on? She said, well, my parents are coming to visit. She says, oh, they'll have to come to the house. I said, oh, that's really very nice, but, you know, my dad is very <clears throat> um, straight-laced, kind of blue-collar kind of guy. He says, nope, come down. I, I insist. I said, okay. So we drove to Admiral Zumwalt's house, the, uh, the Naval Observatory, a guard menace, yep, the Erickson's family. We drove up, and it says, a, a house a person will greet you there. Uh, Mrs. Zumwalt was just finishing up a tennis match with Senator so-and-so's wife. She came in, and we had lunch together, and we learned that she was uh, of Russian background, Harbonite which was kind of a thing when the chief of naval operations, that was a, kind of a strange deal. But we started talking and she found out my mother was a musician. She says, oh, you have to listen to some Russian music. So she brought down her daughter's record player and we listened and, and she narrated it. That would, may not be interesting in itself, except it was a great afternoon that my mom did. <clears throat> she said, you ought to do this with an AV band. So my mom did three arrangements of Russian tunes and Mrs. Zumwalt narrated it with, on the Navy band concert a, a year later. So these are things when people get together and just talk, you know. So there's lots of things like that. <laughs>
teaching at Lawrence and did you kind of do that in between while you're doing the Navy no, band stuff? No, I, I retired from the Navy band and the very first job I did was I went on tour with a, a Keith Bryan and the New Sousa band along with Tim Lohr who had just retired from the U.S. Army Field Band, tuba player, and I met them. Uh, I was booked to be a guest artist in six towns in Texas, so I finished that and I joined the Sousa band in Galveston, Texas, and we did about an eight or nine day tour in uh, that same time, I got offered, he said, hey, you left the Navy band, how would you like to teach at Penn State University? Because I'd done master classes there. Okay. So I started teaching part-time at Penn State University, driving up from Maryland. Then I moved to Michigan and um, started still teaching at Penn State. I taught there eight years. And then the trumpet player there at Penn State won the job at Lawrence. He said, hey, they have a tube opening at least be a closer commute for me if you did that. So in, uh, you know, 2002, I started at Lawrence University, uh, 2001 or 2002, from that job. Okay. Yeah. And I was also teaching part-time at UW-Milwaukee when I came here. Okay. Yeah. Um, you talked about the um, the guy that I wanted the Kenosha Pops to burn in this summer, um, and Keith Bryan. Um, what what was it playing in that group? What was it? What was he like as like uh, in a rehearsal setting? Um, just what it, what did you learn from playing in in that group? I, I learned mainly from the older guys that had played the Sousa band. There him. I mean, he had he had his bit. He did John Philip Sousa, and he had all the mannerisms and things, and a, a, a huge amount of listening. There was you know he, he was not the only one doing John Philip Sousa things. Mm. There's a guy named Jimmy Keys who had his own John Philip Sousa uh, presentation too. That's earlier. the guy at uh, University of Illinois, if I'm I correct? I th think so. I mean, you know, okay. before him was Harry Bijan, but I think you might be more accurate than I am about that, but I played for both of them. Okay. Keith Bryan was, um, as very, he, we matched the style, he said you have to get used to, so it was mainly uh, seeing how we follow him yeah. and the style. Uh, but they had a bass drummer with them, Brian... Brian Holt. Yeah, Brian Holt. And uh, my wife actually played with them also on percussion. And he was the quintessential bass drummer. And it showed how they put with accents certain different beats, the tempos, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, generally in the service bands, everybody says, well, Stars and Stripes, that's quarter note equals 120 as this march. But really, most of the bands played about 126. And uh, But certain the accents and the certain... Um, uh, dynamics and when we repeat a strain, they'll change the dynamics, and also tempo changes and dogfights. There's a little idiosyncrasies about those elements that we did with the Sousa band that were a little different than we did with other bands, uh, just because of the history of it. Did that take like what was? Did it take some time to kind of learn that style, especially on tuba? Or? You know, not really, because uh, Keith Bryan, he, he was a lot of retired or current service band players when he could. 
Otherwise, you would pick up local professionals. For instance, when we went in Texas, we had a, a trombonist from the Houston Ballet, and we had a trumpet player from a couple of the universities. And generally, they're older, one from Lamar University, Raul, a great trumpet player. He's a great cornet stylist and knew that style. So these are a lot of people who understood the history, knew Sousa, had the experience of playing all this music. So we meet, and there's only be a day or two of rehearsals and then the tour, you know, and sometimes only one and a half rehearsals. Mm. So he had people that kind of understood the style, and then you just put finer touches on it or something the way Sousa always did it, you know. For instance, Washington Post was actually a two-step. People used to dance to the Sousa band at the turn of the century. They and they would say, instead of playing a two-step, they'd play play Washington Post. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess kind of what was kind of your knowledge of Sousa prior to playing that band? When did you start playing in the new Sousa band? And like, what did you learn from that experience? Uh, I learned most of that things from... Ed Livingston, my teacher, was at Grand Rhapsody. He eventually became the marching band conductor and low brass teacher at Illinois State University. And, uh, if you could see my wall, you'd see the pictures of him with a massive tuba over there. Uh, and <laughs> um, he, uh, he played in the Army Field, U.S. Army Field Band, as did Harvey Phillips. Other tuba players, Dan Perantoni, Jim Self, Chester Smith from the Boston Symphony, all played in the Army Band. So... A lot of these main symphony guys had that military band training. So right from the first, I was taught that marchers are not throwaway music. It's just good music. And he taught me the right style. And he played also with the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus Bands. And there's another tuba player named Johnny Evans. I got a couple lessons with him when I was a teenager. And they told me about those styles. All the circus marchers were fast. Then with Mr. Falcone being a baritone horn player initially, what they called it before it they started using euphoniums. He was uh, steeped in the style of marches. We played a lot of marches at Michigan State University at that time and transcriptions. Now the university bands tend to lean more, more modern things, contemporary wind ensemble things, and not so much of what we might call a concert in the park type thing. So, but, uh, so Falcone, then I had that from him. So it was an easy transition for me into the Navy band. Uh, I had just a book of marches that I learned all the tuba parts on before I ever got there. Okay. Um, I guess from a Sousa perspective, like what did you just know the marches going into playing that in that group, or did you then uh, like there's um, or any of his other music? How much of his other music did you play in? Not this much. Group? Uh, when we got to the Navy band, it did more like um, some in Darkest Africa. I love and, that piece. That's yeah. the third movement from. Uh, what's the sweet? Three, three, three quotations. Yep, three quotations. And looking upwards, sweet. I'd never done those things like that before. And like I said, I caution the, the listeners to your program that I don't consider myself a Sousa expert, but I played a lot of the music, and uh, I played with a lot of conductors doing that music. And in fact, you know, we uh, we shared some of the like Colonel John Bourgeois, the Marine Band at the time, would conduct the Navy Band on occasion. And we also formed uh, for American Bandmaster Association, we do a combined service band of all four or five, 20 of us from each band, and each all the conductors would do a mass uh, concert. So each of the leaders of the band. So I, I knew most of the leaders of all the bands through the 26 years, you know, and I played pretty much with all of them. Okay, so did you ever play that? I know one of the pieces that has a good tuba, part of a tuba thing in there is that, uh, 
the humor esque on look for the silver lining. Yeah, okay. sure. Yeah. Uh, that that's one of <clears throat> my favorite of Sousa's other work. You know, another thing you might you know, Sousa came kind of back to life in different ways. There was a, a composer arranger named Andre Castellanitz. People who might my, my age remember around the '60s and '50s, and he put together like an all-star band and up. Uh, put a modern slant on all the marches like Ferris of the Fair and Liberty Bell and what of kind of a jazzy thing, you know. Mm. And that tuba section was Harvey Phillips and Bill and Bell and I mean all the, these top players from all over. And I, I, I can't think of the night time right there. But uh, and the other tie in for me in marches was Leonard Smith. Okay, the complete Detroit, Detroit completed marches band. or what was the completed marches because obviously the Marine Band Right. Was done and re re record re recorded and then now they're they've just finished that project where they're recording they recorded all the completed marches besides maybe three or four that weren't on there that I have heard because I I heard the March of the Pan Pan Americans thing from Keith's thing sure Library of Congress is not on there right. The other Royal Welsh Fusiliers, it's more of the medley march. Well, they did a series of albums called the Gem Series. And the 20-something, Leonard Smith, and he, he wrote pieces like the great march he wrote was called The Town Crier. A great march that not many people are ever going to hear of. But mm. written. And uh, do you recall who the assistant director of the Detroit Concert Band is? was? Ravelli? Earl Lauder. Earl Lauder, okay. Earl Lauder conducted a lot of those and was the soloist. So not only did he do this, he was in the Navy band. He left after 10 years. Uh, he liked to say he hired me, then he got out of there. <laughs> and then he went to Moorhead State University in Kentucky, where he did 26 years, as I did 26 years in the Navy. <clears throat> but he was the assistant conductor uh, of the Detroit Concert Band. Uh, he had a magnificent voice. He also taught choral music at Moorhead State. Um, so I guess, do you have any, like, any favorite Susan marches? I assume the Diplomat or Pathfinder or Panama yeah, Pat, or I, Glory I like the Yankee Navy. I, I did like Dodge Africa and some of the more, you know, the ones that everybody knows, the standards. And Washington Post is still, I, I can play pretty much most of them by memory. I, I always wonder about that, and I'll sit in with the community band and hear them play. And if I'm warming up in the wings, I'll just play along with the march uh, from memory. <clears throat> but uh, having done... Um, the heritage of the march with the Navy band, I kind of gained more of appreciative marches from all around the world by, by uh, uh, Lore and Montagazi and composers like that. So um, I have a lot of favorite marches by other composers, you know, okay. um, and the Fillmore and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I, it's just a great piece. Uh, uh, one of Falcone's favorite marches was Black Horse Troop. That was we played that at every football game, and with the Orange Bowl march. But Black Horse was that was Falcon. We played that all the time, and he liked the little march called Inglesina. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. I, I wish Craig would pull that out with Kenosha Pops. They've never played that one before. Yeah, it's a great march. I think Mark Eichner did that one last summer with the Racine Band. Yeah. So. Then we got a lot of international marches when they as good. We had guests are uh, like. Uh, Christian Johannesson from the Norwegian Ground Forces Band, and he liked to do a Valdrez. That one's a good one. You know, and everybody thinks it's the solo cornet piece, you know, bum bum, bum bum, bum bum. But it's originally clarinet section that does that. Yeah. And it's I, been I, kind of 
changed around so everybody what they want to hear is the solo cornet pretty little thing yeah that, that would explain why laura schischel's arrangement is the clarinet not the trumpet and that's and he's okay i tr trust laura schischel on that one <laughs> yeah i i was like really there's a cl it's clarinet not the trumpet yeah um i guess kind of you were talking about other favorite marches of yours like do you have like what's your favorite Fillmore or what's oh geez uh, uh I I get this is off off the fly I feel like grabbing my uh, like three hundred records over here and go through them but um geez uh, I'm blanking out right now but there's a Uncle Henry Fillmore on there there's a whole bunch of uh, band historians uh, historians right now who are um, naming all like hundreds of marches that I won't think of. But the other ones I like were German marches by Alter Kameraden. Uh, Alter Kameraden, of course, and by Blankenberg and Karl Taika, you know, Klar Zumgefecht, uh, things like that. Great marches, great, great British marches, you know, so um, all those things. But I, like I said, it had, I liked all the music, and of course then I ended up getting into jazz a little bit more later, so I ended up you know, and with tuba, but I've also uh, one thing about my career. I'm glad I did is, I've been in a quintet every year of my life since sixth grade. I've had a full a brass quintet every year without fail. Uh, of course, now later professional quintets in playing. Um, I guess talk about that. What's the battle band the brass? There's, there's Brass Band of Battle Creek. Ba yeah, I have the drum way. Yeah, we have about 10 or 12 CDs out. It's a hand-picked group from C Canada, uh, England, and the United States where the uh, two brothers that founded it are Jim and Bill Gray. They're both podiatrists okay. who loved the Br Salvation Army Band and British Brass Band style. So back in 1989, uh, they used to help out. I'm adjudicating chairman for the annual Falcone Euphonium and Tuba Festival held at Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp. And it was started by the uh, William Stansel, who was the president of the camp, was a student of Mr. Falcone, and he wanted to, we wanted to honor him and some of his students with this festival. So Jim and Bill just loved the euphonium too, and they wanted to come. So they served as volunteers, these two doctors, and they and they met me. And so Phil Cinder at Michigan State University and I were the first kind of couple of ringers with the band. We gradually started adding more professional players. It started as kind of a the best players in that community mm -hmm. expanding that now, you know. How many you, of those, are there any of those that played in the New Seas Band as well, or? Uh, yes, Gail Robertson. Okay, I've heard of her. Yeah, so the euphonium section usually is uh, Steve Mead and Ben Pierce, Demandre Thurman and Gail Robertson on baritone horn, but a fabulous trumpet section, Rex Richardson on flugelhorn, Jens Lindemann, soprano, uh, Rich Kelly, Chris Jodas, who so was used to be the New York Staff Band, uh, the tubas uh, have been usually uh, Dave Zirkel and Phil Cinder on the big horns, or some William Russell from Boston Brass. Uh, I've been the E-flat tuba player. Dan Neasley from the Milwaukee Ballet Orchestra did it for about 12 or 15 years, and now Les Niche, tuba player from Manchester, England. Uh, and it all, it's all-star all through. My wife played timpani in the band for 30 years, and the percussion section is uh, John Beck from North Carolina, Florida Symphony, so, yeah, it's it's a. Is that similar to um, the group in Racine, like the Bell City Brass Works? Yeah, I mean okay. it's the same instrumentation. Okay. The generally it's a thirty-two piece brass band, four percussion, twenty-eight brass. Okay. And generally there's you know the two euphoniums, two uh, baritone horns, two B flat tu tubas and two E flat tubas, and then the 
then the other like brass band chairs are Rippiano cornet, which is kind of a floating thing, and the soprano solo cornet, and then yeah, the other chairs. Okay. The whole band reads treble clef usually, except for the bass trombone. It's the only one that reads in bass clef. Uh, so you asked about my listening earlier. Saturday mornings at my home, we listen to the uh, London or Chicago staff bands from the Salvation Army. Then I listen to Serenade and Blue with the Airman and Oak big band, jazz. And then we watch the Leonard Bernstein New York Philharmonic Young Audiences concerts. And we just, but we just listen to music all the time. And when we got, our families got together with the people of Stansel's who formed Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp in Michigan. We play brass, came to music one week, have dinner together a month later. We do woodwinds and or uh, recorders. And then the strings, I play string bass, my mom played viola. The band director started playing trumpet, would play cello. And so I grew up every year of my life playing chamber music, you know, with the family.
talk about one of those recordings that you've made um how did the uh the Wycliffe Gordon duet recording kind of come out I'm guessing it had some sort of connection with the jazz fest here uh actually no and it, because of the brass band of Battle Creek okay in fact that's where I met my wife too all right <laughs> but Wycliffe was played with us and he learned that I could do some bass and, and light jazz so rehearsal would finish and everybody could be, be have two or three three or four hour rehearsals and he just walked over from the trombone and he sat down next to me and says, okay, Marty, let's get off the page. And he just wanted to jam. So we would just jam, start playing for the hour again. And uh, one of our friends, uh, well-to-do uh, kind of a supporter of the brass band was a gentleman named Tom Frank from Marshall, Michigan. But my wife and I used to stay with him for 20 or 25 years when we played with the brass band. And he said, he heard us play, that sounds great. And he people said, man, you guys ought to do a CD. And the, the gentleman, Tom Frank, said, well, how do you do that? And we told well, you have to do this, and recording session, if you, we, and then you do it. And he said, okay, let's do it. And uh, he said, I'll pay for it. So Wycliffe, we're sitting at Lawrence University in my studio right now. We recorded it in the Lawrence University jazz room with our bassist, Mark Ernest, teacher, and Dane Richardson, our percussion. And the pianist was Ron Newman, who wrote a lot of the arrangements and taught at Michigan State, where Mich Wycliffe taught for a while. So all these things, and recorded it right here. Uh, so that came out of us jamming together and hanging out and doing like um, post-con, the brass band had fundraisers. We have a local favorite bar there called The Griffin in Battle Creek, and then we played jam sessions where people donate money and do fundraisers. So that's that's how we got together. Okay. Um, how cool is that, being able to record that recording with him? Or? Oh, unbelievable. What a musician. He's been the downbeat top trombonist for four or five of the last six or seven years. The amazing musician travel. And he also 
had uh, played a Louis Armstrong trumpet. See, he had a mouthpiece adapted. He can play trumpet, he can play tuba, he can play everything. He can tap dance, he, uh, he can throw a football 50 yards. I mean, uh, he's an amazing um, just person, uh, very creative. Uh, in fact, the album is recorded on uh, Bluesback Records, which is his label. Uh, and we, he, uh, he helped me um, kind of get up. I've never been too shy, but he helped me get further out of my shell in jazz and, and experiment. We did things with multiphonics, okay. where you sing and play at the same time. We did some overdumbing. He wrote a tune. He said, hey, do you want to do, you do, do some scat singing, or do you do this, do this? Okay. So <laughs> um, it was really a fun CD. We put it together, really, and recorded it, and the whole thing happened in about two or three days. Um, the other rec recording that I noticed has a little bit of a might have a little bit of a Kenosha connection. Um, talk about kind of some of your other recordings, but also there's one as Steve Houghton. Yeah, Steve Houghton uh, teaches at Indiana University. Of course, he has a uh, he's a drummer on a lot of big players. He used to play with the Woody Herman Band. Uh, he was my drummer on my uh, second jazz CD with Marvin Stamm on trumpet, Frank Mantooth on piano, the famous jazz arranger and player, uh, Rob Fisher on bass, he was Cal Jader's bass player, and we did that in Fantasy Studios uh, in Oakland, California. But Steve Houghton was a drummer, fabulous. And I played with him a couple other times. He uh, recorded um, with Jim Self, the famous tuba player from the movie thing. He did uh, some of the recordings with him. He also did a recording with Dan Parentoni, the tuba player at Indiana University. But uh, yeah, he was did a fabulous job. So I think what was it his dad was the fine arts coordinator at one point. Kenosha, I think, I think I the think one that Kenosha, yeah. formed formed the the Bandorama Festival that right. they do every year. Um, right. So that's kind of another good Kenosha connection. I guess any before you kind of get into kind of more about Lawrence and then obviously teaching in the pandemic. Um, I guess any, I guess wheelie stories or um, any like Craig Gall stories or. Yeah. Um, Ken Wheelie, I uh, met his son because uh, when I got to the, uh, Lawrence, he was already teaching and uh, I found out very quickly how respected he was, a band director in the state and had good programs and he also brought his groups, which included you mm. up here to Lawrence for the jazz festival. His son was equally talented and studied with my best friend here at Lawrence for years with Nick Keelan, who was also Craig Gall's trombone yep. teacher. And I stayed in touch with him. I talked to him for 45 minutes yesterday. Um, so I met pretty much all those people through Nick Keelan, uh, the trombone connection. And he had he was here ahead of me about 10 years. So um, I just kind of got to know those people late. So I... I don't have the Wisconsin history tie-ins like some, but I got to know people like Kurt Dietrich, uh, you know, over at Ripon, and he's another jazz historian, a writer, amazing. His son went here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I have those kind of tie-ins. But Craig Gall stories, um, I sold it with his band at Kimberly, and, uh, of course, I sold it with Kenosha in 2005. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they were they were asking... When the last time you played with that group, and then my dad was texting me, and he was like, "Was I?" For years, I had the you know the sheets of from the two thousands all the way through. I don't know what year I regularly collected them, but um, I remember saying two thousand five because it was also the year they did the Sousa Sesquicentennial. That's right. 
and I think the band did a few. Craig would say obscure, not so known. Yeah. And really, Bodiel and Bell Chicago are fairly known Sousa marches. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple like Minnesota March and Wisconsin Ford Forever played that summer, but I remember it was that summer that they did that as well. Right. So. Yeah, and I was there before, also Kenosha. I did some school outreach programs in 2016, but it, I, I didn't do a play with the band at that time, but I went into schools and worked with the brass players and things like that. Uh, but so Craig, uh, also he and I played some Dixieland jazz together. He's a really fine Dixieland jazz trombone player. Uh, and uh, I learned something else about Craig, and I'm I mean, embarrassing, but Nick said, did you ever hear him play piano? Did you ever hear him play organ? I said, uh, no, I didn't know. He said, he's fabulous. He's an amazing piano player, amazing organist, which I had no idea. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah, I heard, I was talking to somebody. I, I had to go take photos for the Kimberly July 3rd fireworks thing in the Kimberly community band, which are okay. Um, they're not the commercial pops, but that's not a fair comparison. But, um... I talked to somebody in the band that knew Craig, and he was talking about some story about uh, Craig was playing some sort of Sound of Music production, yeah. and he would be monkeying around and throwing beer barrel polka or um, Wisconsin <laughs> somehow into this, you know. Well, he has an amazing ear, you yeah. know, and uh, he's just a good all-around musician. He loves the pops and the, the bands. Um, they're, you know, they're lucky to have somebody like that who... Uh, Really, not only is skilled, but loves doing it and part of the community. But um, story I heard just literally yesterday from his former teacher was uh, he even accompanied some of the juries. And he said he wasn't reading music so much at that time as a student, but he could play anything from here. So he tried to read most of the music, but he could fill in the gaps. And you know, uh, so that tells you a lot about his uh, malleability of being play styles, mm. understanding different eras of music, and so that's a great. That's a great thing to bring to a community band to have the, that conversant and all those musical styles, pop, classical, marches, you know, Latin, all those things. So, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, talk about kind of Lawrence University as a music program, but also kind of um, what was teaching in the pandemic like for kind of the music not program? Not fun right? for anybody, and in, in particular, uh, you know, debilitating. The main thing <clears throat> that got missed <clears throat> Excuse me, I and mean, we could teach virtually, but you know, the each student didn't have good equipment necessarily, microphones. So, especially with the low voice and tubas, if somebody tried to have a lesson, a Zoom lesson on their phone, certain things a, a, a tuba would play a long note, you're me, and the, the sound just cuts out. The noise, the noise rate cuts out. <clears throat> so people gradually started getting better microphones, and the lessons kind of work, but you don't get the same visceral information you get being in the same room with a person and seeing things, mm. watching them breathe, uh, in the back and forth playing, you can do a little bit of that. But the biggest thing was missed was ensemble playing, playing together with other people. So imagine somebody leaving high school, starting their, their college career, and there is no band. So you know, they had to deal with half of the band and a third of the band would be in here, mm. and this because of limitations of the size, and other band members at home listening on headphones, well, they couldn't play really with the band <clears throat> unless you, uh, what they could do is cut out their sound and play along with the band, sort of. But that's a, a terrible experience. And uh, my students mention it more, like the older students especially. Um, 
So many of the younger people, freshmen and sophomores, learn by sitting next to the more capable senior people, so how they do it. So that, that whole learning process was interrupted of just hearing, playing, adapting, tuning, precision, playing all those kind of characteristics developed by chamber music or good ensemble playing with a conductor guiding all that. That was all gone. So it, it really feels like we just kind of lost two and a half years. And of course, it was devastating what it did to music and jobs and gigs and all kinds of things. Um, obviously, how do you kind of keep your uh, for yourself kind of keep busy as a musician during that? Or oh yeah, I, uh, I for me, what works best if I keep goal keep setting goals. So I did um, a lot of virtual teaching. I did some uh, I did some virtual master classes. The one thing that was the good that came out of it, I guess, was Zoom got better, recording equipment got better, and for for my students here at Lawrence, uh, I have a lot of great friends. Uh, fortunately, uh, privileged to have really well-known people around the world, so we would kind of trade master classes. So I had Zoom master class with Gene Picorni of Chicago Symphony, Pavel Umaryov with the Moscow Radio Orchestra, Reiner Hoos with the Vienna Radio Reiner Orchestra, Rodney Marcellus, the trumpet player, <clears throat> uh, just uh, reading and skilled and playing, uh, and it goes on and on. I had a lot of guests via Zoom. And I was able to give them a little bit of money, uh, not what they deserved. And then I would kind of do things in return. Uh, so uh, we had a lot of guest clinic things. So that was kind of nice. They got to hear from people and Roger Bobo and people they might otherwise not have met. Uh, so I did. I used to. T I taught in Germany, Australia, and Canada, Brazil, um, and whatever. Never leaving my home, you know. So that was interesting. And it was helpful in some way to have, okay, we're getting some intercultural information and some master classes from people. Uh, and that's how they wanted to keep going, too. So musicians find a way to keep setting goals. They play, okay, if I'm going to demonstrate for this class, you stay warmed up and play. And, uh, we just kind of kept supporting each other. Did you learn anything from, like, maybe your students and how, like, uh, you talked about microphones and how they... Oh, yeah, I'm... I'm an old guy, so I learned a lot of uh, technology from my students. Uh, they learned me up. Um, but I did. I have a close friend named Scott Sutherland, who is out of a place in the Redlands Orchestra, and he plays frequently with the uh, L.A. Philharmonic. And he actually has a, a show, podcast, and he uh, and a lot of um, kind of um, video technique help. Uh, so he advised me on some microphones. So he, uh, we tried some things, and he had me got like a USB uh, microphone and set up uh, and then I got other things visually and then the students uh, found out we could get he advised them and they could pick up decent microphones that I could hear and have the range to pick up euphonium tuba um, you know for 60 to 80 dollars and not two or three hundred dollars mm -hmm. and I just gradually kind of tried to upgrade to make that experience as, as good as you can. You don't realize that's that's something until you kind of hear, kind of talk about it. Cause that that's kind of some that range isn't is. Yeah, there's a certain you know the the, the decibels that high and low you know that that won't accept that'd be a minimal range, so you have to get a microphone that that will it won't cut out when you're playing tuba or playing the busy parts, and just sound cuts out. And oftentimes I, kids and they have poor equipment. 
and I see him playing, and <laughs> they're doing an etude, they play, and all of a sudden, there's eight measures I don't hear. I can't see him still playing. I said, uh, excuse me? <laughs> you know, Sorry, I can't hear you. <laughs> you know? um, to be kind of, do you think kind of, like, is it better to hear kind of those Sousa recordings in that performance practice style, or do you kind of... No, I mean, uh, we do a lot of listening, and I think most good teachers will insist that their students do a lot of listening. So I said, you have so many resources that, you know, the students are not going to go run to hear Sousa unless they've been brought up in a tradition of that or they've gone to their town band concerts or that. So it's not something people run to go hear. Um, <clears throat> so it's my job to kind of uh, make sure the history isn't lost and the style of doing these things. So it's, quite often I'll... Uh, and I've been really fortunate to have good high school and college band directors. If I'm soloing, they'll say, well, would you listen to the rehearsal and see? And I, I can kind of say, okay, so, well, you know, I, they're playing great, but this this would be a little shorter. Sometimes they do a little retard and then speed up here. Mm. So that um, it's passing along history more than anything else um, and trying to get those things right. And just saying, making sure people know that marches are just another great piece of music it's not that's not something you put in between other pieces you know just because it's going to be part of the program do so. you feel like you know maybe some of the Fillmore marches or Carl King marches are played the same way or yeah I mean at, at marches in general I mean I think they have favorites just like people when they go to the concert I mean, uh, an orchestral concert they want to hear you know Beethoven's Fifth or a Mozart Symphony or they want to you know uh Dvorak in the world, and they want to hear, heaven forbid, uh, tuba players hate Dvorak in the world because we only play 14 measures. Well, anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they have favorites like that, so obviously our National March, Stars and Stripes are going to get played a lot. E.E. E. Bagley's National Emblem is typically the trio. That march is used for marching on the colors. All the service bands use that when they say parade the colors or march the colors. You know, bump, bump, bump. That's E.E. E. Bagley. That, that's well known. Maybe people don't know who the March composer is. Mm. But so they get it and they have certain go to marches. But I appreciate it when, like, uh, Craig and other conductors reach out and get some of those older marches. And Falcone, I, I'd never heard of Black Horse Troop. It's a great march. I'd never heard of the, uh, you know, the, in Darkest Africa until I got to the Navy Band. Mm. And I was, I was a young kid out of college. I'm not. I haven't been listening. I've been listening to a lot of brass music. We used to sit and have brass listening. So like the Chicago and Cleveland and Philadelphia orchestras playing God rarely brass music, you know. But we didn't sit in a room and listen to people playing marches, you know. Um, kind of look, kind of close this off. It's, um, I guess that kind of, as you played with Keith Bryan and you know Loris a little bit, just what does it mean to kind of have people like that that do this research and, um, you know, and are now putting out these, like, obviously performance editions of Sousa's music. I know Carl King's, there's some yeah. Carl King editions coming out as well. I, you know, it's like um, what society is trying to do now as they're embracing this inclusivity and diversity, which should have been going on, obviously, for years. Um, so what they do is, uh, I think when a person that other people respect or look to embrace something and say, this is good, this is a good thing. It instills that kind of spirit in other people. <clears throat> and that's one of the duties I have 
and as an older guy now, is that music I remember from my past and stuff. I mean, my most inspirational piece pieces I heard when I was a kid, the reason I went to Ben was Schumann's Chester Overture and Washington Post March. And so those are the kind of things that, whoa, maybe I can play that someday. And then and because of, I think some colleges get into the uh, real new music syndromes, which is fine. You need experience of all, but I, I, I like the transcriptions. I like playing the older things. Uh, so it's up to me. If I show joy and I, I think they're worthwhile, then anyone who thinks anything kind of me will probably take a second look at it. And, and that's what we do. We get people to take a look at it and try it and then say, you know, if you like that, listen to this. Mm. So you, now you can start guiding, guiding that. Um, obviously, you played with the Kenosha Pops recently. Obviously, they're celebrating their centennial this year. Um, what did it mean to kind of get back and play? Solo oh, it's great. That and I, I, of course, like most community bands, there's several people I recognize and remember. Uh, the reunion was great, but it's a really good community band. It's uh, I played with a bunch of them, and so I have a, <clears throat> a set of arrangements I have. They're kind of graded, right? When I know, I okay, I can do this solo pretty challenging for this group and it kind of goes down and mainly you know it's um it kind of a certain media level Kenosha Pops is definitely in the upper tier mm. um in one rehearsal they can I did four solos with them and two of them are pretty challenging with regards to tempo changes technique uh, challenges throughout the whole sections uh whether it be your little featured solos in the piece uh, so I know that I can pick a program that's a little bit more challenging and it'll come off with a group like Kenosha Pops. They, they really play well. They do a nice program. They have a steady crowd. Um, so I think they're firmly keeping all the band traditions intact there. It's kind of neat from like a Kenosha and Racine perspective that you have the Kenosha Pops celebrating their centennial, and then you have Mark Eichner and the Racine Concert Band celebrating their centennial. I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure you know Del Eich, too. Mm -hmm. um, um, what what do you think it means to those those two communities that they're celebrating? Yeah, well, it, it ensures that things will continue on. You know, with the um, when we talk about COVID, we talk about what this business closed, that closed, the San, Ante uh, San Antonio Symphony folded, that all these. But what you see <clears throat> is a history and tradition that is not being lost. That's embraced by the community, and it, it just it kind of gives you hope. It sounds corny, I know, mm. but it doesn't. I, I uh, by the way, I should mention. I really appreciate the support and stuff of through the years of Pacetti's music. I pronounce it Pacetti's, but Pacetti's music in uh, Kenosha has been so great. Uh, Emil Pacetti was a good friend of mine and his wife, Marsha Lee, and uh, they helped support me when I was there. And I went and visited the store while I was in Kenosha and then rebuilding and adding. And it's, it's uh, now they call it um, Pacetti's Maestro of Music, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so people like that. <clears throat> and they played in the band, <clears throat> and um, they help each other. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, it works both ways. Community helps the band, band helps the community. Um, I guess we'll end this with, um, I guess, best thing about teaching at Lawrence. Uh, my colleagues <clears throat> and the students. Students are very bright. We have the, the probably the best double degree program in the United States, and that's just not hometown pride, it's just the truth. We have uh, the uh, diversity of the things you can do here, opera orchestra, chamber orchestra, big band, combos, brass quintets, low brass excerpts, uh, jazz, 
opera, classical, dance, and the students are very bright. So we get a lot of double degree majors, and you may not have a, you, you might have a, for instance, two of my uh, finest students in the past, one was a marine biology and tuba double major, one was a theology and euphonium major, one a psychology and euphonium major, one was a, uh, a Russian linguistics and tuba major, <clears throat> and they're very bright, and uh, so they're very disciplined, and they're, you know, they're prepared, uh, and they, they grow, uh, plus they keep me on my toes, you know, I, I try to read the freshman studies books every year if I can. Um, I forgot to ask this, but I thought, I, I, I've had, a, obviously, Craig on my podcast, I've had Chris Mischblocksdorf on my podcast, both, <laughs> obviously, Lawrence grads, um, and I, every time I bring up Lawrence, I, I feel like I got to bring up um, Fred Sturm. Do you got any like, good Fred Sturm stories? I've yeah, seen. I mean, he Fred led the jazz amazing. program here. First time I met him, he was at Eastman doing the jazz program, and I was doing a clinic at Eastman for Don Harry's, a tuba player, uh, retired from the Buffalo Philharmonic, teaches there, and Mark Kellogg on euphonium and trombone. So I was there doing things, and in fact, one of my students came from there. And then Fred came back to Lawrence, where he started. In fact, um, I still practice time to time on Fred Sturm's Wilson Euphonium that he owned, which he left here for the school. Fred was an inspiration um, uh, and uh, real enthusiastic, and he got me involved with the jazz faculty as a tuba player. Uh, so talk about being inclusive and, uh, you know, he said, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, so really an inspirational guy. Uh, and there was a nice, interesting tie-in. You knew about the jazz festivals because you came up here yeah. for that. Well, one of his uh, close friends is a guy who owns Sierra Music, which is does jazz music, is Bob Kernel. And he donated his entire Sierra Music library in perpetuity here to Lawrence University. And so we had the Fred Stern, his room now is a library room with all the jazz pieces. The tie-in is that Bob Kernel was the jazz band director at Michigan State when I was the bass player at Michigan State. So we hadn't seen each other until Fred Stern's memorial. But I know his uh, son and daughter Ike and Maddie Stern, and his wife, she's uh, she in Door County now, but we used to spend some time with them. Ike Stern is, doing, is a fabulous bass player, played with Tony Bennett, plays in New York, has his own uh, uh, gospel group, and he's just a monster jazz player. Maddie was a clarinet player, <clears throat> and she ended up doing all the graphics for the Daily Show on John Stewart. So, but so Fred uh, was just inspiration. The, he and uh, Nick Keelan were real close buddies. So, yeah. All right, all right, Marty. Uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for the interview.